I would like to welcome you very warmly uh, to this, this evening's event. This is a festi- uh, part of the LSE's Literary Festival, a discussion hosted by the Department of Media and Communications. Uh, and our subject today, Adaptation in an Age of Digitization, um, Fans, Practitioners and Foes. Uh, and we hope to have a lively um, presentations from our panel, who I'm going to introduce you to in a minute, and then I'm sure uh, responses and questions uh, from you, our audience. The idea of adaptation, I think, um, is very pertinent for a Department of Media and Communications. We used to teach about television or radio or the press, uh, more recently the internet. Now we are um, in a state of some uh, rethinking, occasionally crisis, as our texts, our audiences, our um, processes of production move across uh, from one platform to another. Um, So whether we are teaching about a book, a film, a game, a website, uh, exactly what difference that makes exactly how content may become transformed as it moves from one format to another. Uh, These things are all, I think, very much questions people are asking about today. Does it matter uh, when Elizabeth Bennett now looks like Keira Knightley? And can we remember what our own Elizabeth Bennett used to look like? Uh, What happens when a book that you were fond of becomes a game in which you can, be, you can play in the first person and become the star. What is Harry Potter? Is it a book? Is it a film? Is it a game? Is it a website? Is it a brand? Uh, is it something different in those different ways? What does it mean for the uh, audience, sometimes called the reader, sometimes called the viewer, sometimes called the player, as they themselves move across these different formats, sometimes following the one text uh, as it is adapted, perhaps transformed. Uh, Shall we be foes of this practice and say, no, a book should stay a book? Um, Do not do what Disney did to Winnie the Pooh. How terrible. Um, (laughs) You might disagree. Are new meanings added, new possibilities um, allowed for, new kinds of creativity, new literacies, as we move and engage with text in these different ways. So I think that's a very um, broad agenda, and we have three experts here to present uh, to you from rather different um, perspectives, perhaps. Um, Each may be going to talk about a different media, but we will see. Uh, And I'd like to introduce them to you now. So first to speak uh, on my left is Blake Morrison, I think uh, famous for his books, uh, When Did You Last See Your Father, and Things My Mother Never Told Me. He's a fellow of the Royal Society of Literature, former chair of the Poetry Book Society, and vice chair of PEN. I should know what that stands for. Must be a writer's writer's association. (laughs) Um, And he has a written fiction, poetry, journalism, literary criticism, libretti, and adapted plays for the stage. So adaptation is absolutely part of his expertise. Andrew Byrne, who will speak next, is Professor of Media Education at the Institute of Education and has published on a range of different media, including questions of media literacy in schools, the semiotics of the moving image, 
computer games and young people as producers of digital animation, film and computer games and he's author of Making New Media, Creative Production and Digital Literacies. And third to speak, uh, Shakuntala Banaji, who lectures in the department here, the Department of um, Media and Communication at LSE in the field of international media and film. And her books, Reading Bollywood and South Asian Media Cultures, discuss how film and other, pro other media products are interpreted by audiences in different contexts and different cultures. So I look forward to what each is going to say. Uh, I know you'll be thinking of your uh, questions to ask, and I think each is going to come and make a short presentation from where I am now. So if we may first welcome Blake Morrison. I, um, I was in a meeting two days ago with the theatre director and actor Barry Rutter who runs the Northern Broadsides theatre company who had a big success a couple of years ago with Lenny Henry in the role of Othello. Uh, I've adapted plays for him in the past and our latest project for the autumn is one of the most unlikely uh, that we've attempted so far which is to redo Chekhov's The Three Sisters as the story of the three Bronte sisters. It takes some getting your head round, but it happens that there's some basis for this. Chekhov had read about the Brontes in Elizabeth Jackal, Gaskell's biography. Um, and certainly if you think about the, the brother in The Three Sisters, um, there is some, the way he's portrayed in the play, bears some resemblance to Branwell Bronte. But our problem is thinking, what are we going to be true to with this play? Are we going to be true to the life of the Brontes? Are we going to be true to the Chekhov play that we're adapting? Is it possible to be true to both? And we found ourselves automatically talking in that language of fidelity, being faithful to something. And I think it's impossible to get away from this. There, are, there have been lots of arguments, I think. Uh, I'm not very abreast with adaptation theory, but I think there are arguments about whether fidelity is the right way to think about uh, an approach adaptation. If a book is turned into a film, there's automatically uh, an assumption somehow that something will be lost, something will be betrayed. Um, there's a, there is one thought would be that everything is adaptation. Everything is copying. I mean, you adapt. If you're putting words on a page, you're making a film, you've taken something from life and you've turned it into words or pictures. Um, and there's also a theory, I suppose, that there's nothing new under the sun, that nothing is original, that there are only seven plots or ten plots or however many it is. So no wonder films draw on books and so forth, because how many original ideas are there? Um, and there's a, there's a kind of relativism about this. I noticed a recent review in the Times Literary Supplement of a book called In Praise of Copying and uh, the American academic argues that everything is copying so let's stop being hung up about the original and the copy because everything's a, a copy um, I'm not a relativist about this um, I, I think that um, I think that some notion of ownership of a, of a, a creative work um, is not 
as has sometimes been argued, something that arrived with capitalism. If you look, I, once upon a time I was commissioned to write a book about plagiarism, a short history of plagiarism. And if you look back to Latin and Greek poets, you'll find it wasn't a sort of free-for-all where they were quite happy intermingling, everybody taking each other's words. No, no, there were fierce arguments about somebody stealing lines. And I think the test is, does it reinvent? Does it... Does it reimagine? Does it do something different? That's what we expect of an adaptation. Um, and that complicated. If we're thinking of fidelity, it actually we're also expecting something to be gained and added. How do you, how do you marry that, those two? Um, I, I was the other evening went to see, and some of you may have seen it, uh, the film Never Let Me Go, the adaptation of Kazuo Ishiguri's novel with um, Kira Knightley and Kerry Mulligan. And I happen to know that Kazuo Ishiguri, who's a co-producer of the film, is very happy with it as an adaptation. And I could see why. Because something about the muted colours, something about the way the camera um, works very slowly, does capture the atmosphere, the spirit of that book. But I know there'll be people who say, I don't want to see that film. I, don't, I love that book, and if I go to the cinema and have to look at Kira Knightley and Kerry Mulligan, it'll spoil those pictures in my head. Um, I've had the experience of being an adapter and of being an adaptee, and I'll just say a few words about that. Um, my, my brief with this, the Northern Broadsides Theatre Company, who have a very strong... Um, commitment to the northern voice, to the use of dialect, to the use of vernacular. My brief has always been to take a classic play, whether Latin or Greek or modern German or Italian, Goldoni, and to make it new and to, in some cases, make it Yorkshire, uh, which is where I come from and where I was brought up. Um, I know the for me, the adaptation process involves, yes, some notion of being true to that original work, but also what's going to sound right to a modern audience, and also what the, the particular processes and conventions of the theatre company and Northern Broadside has its very particular character, how they are going to, going to, um, how they are going to interpret it. So I'm thinking of the actors when I'm adapting to some extent. I'm certainly thinking of the director as well as thinking about the original text. Um, I had the experience of, as, it, as was mentioned, writing a, a couple of librettos. Um, I, I'm not a great opera buff, but I, I, I have a composer friend and we worked together to produce two operas. One involved taking a story by Jules Verne, the science fiction writer, short story, Dr. Ox's Experiment, and making it into a dramatic work and it had the original story a big drama with an explosion so it actually seemed to, to kind of work dramatically and the other was to take the life of Johann Gutenberg the man to whom we owe the invention of movable type in printing you could say in Europe uh, in, in, in that case I mean I was working from a biography I was taking bits from Gutenberg's life to make the opera from that it didn't, to be honest with you, it didn't feel like a very different process to take something 
somebody's life and to take a story because in both cases what, what the concern was was how to make a dramatic piece out of this material whether it's taken from life or taken from a, a, an already existing story um, the, the, the latest novel that I have published called The Last Weekend um, is in some ways a retelling of Othello I was very interested in exploring the theme of jealousy and it seemed to me you can't write about jealousy revenge without thinking of Shakespeare and without thinking of Othello I mean and, and I had that play I had the text of the play with me while I was writing the novel I very deliberately incorporated motifs um, changing them Desdemona's handkerchief become tissues um, I, I stole lines and some people spotted the Othello references and some people didn't it didn't matter to me it mattered that I was working with this wonderful play about jealousy and I could steal bits from that for my, for my work but interestingly not everybody spotted it and to me that wasn't important um, finally to say um, about being adapted the film of When Did You Last See Your Father came out in um, 2008 I think it was um, a very strong cast with Jim Broadbent Colin Firth Juliet Stevenson a low budget British movie the book on which it's based came out in 1993 it took 14 years from the writing of the book to the film being made and interesting about the process of adaptation just to say something about that the book was optioned this is the process an, an author will produce a novel or whatever it is quite often a production company a film company will option it they'll take the rights to make a film of it but then quite often nothing happens and in this case three different production companies at different times optioned it two different screenplays were produced and still nothing would have happened but for them finding a director and for them finding Colin Firth and Jim Broadbent once they got high profile actors suddenly the money came the funding came and it was possible to make that film though in the way of films these days it, there was only six weeks shooting time um, now I, I'll come back to fidelity with, with which I began I was pleased by the, the, the film version of of the book. The book is about my life and my childhood and my father so it wasn't just a matter of taking a novel it was actually a matter of taking my life and childhood. But I thought that the, the screenwriter, the director, the actors um, who involved me a little bit um, allowed me to go on set and so on um, did respect what the book, did understand what the book was trying to do and tried to find equivalents for that in the film. Um, but for me, the most moving moment in the film is a scene where father and son, uh, teenage son, go on a drive, uh, and the father's teaching the son to drive, and they go on a beach, and there's a, a piece of music playing. And it, it's a, a scene that lasts for about a minute. I don't think any dialogue exists in the book, which has lots of scenes. I think there was one sentence where I said my father taught me to drive on a beach. So what that kind of shows to me is that the director, the actors, 
had to re reinvent, had to reimagine, had to make something for another medium. Yes, they took a story that existed in words, but in adapting it, they had to make something new and to find new ways of expressing what I'd expressed in words. So um, I'll finish on that note, but just to say I do think there are adaptations uh, where the, um, the adaptation is better than the original. Um, it, I would suppose, for instance, most people will, will love The Godfather but not have read Mario Puzo. And there must be other cases of the same thing where the adaptation is better than the original. Thank you. Thank you very much. Can I just ask one follow-up question before we um, hear from Andrew, which is to ask whether you think that the adaptee has the right to um, have a view on the adaptation. Uh, you, were, you were called in from the book to the film, but did you have the right? I didn't have the right. I, it, was a it was a courtesy. No, I think if you sell your, your rights, um, you take money, you pass it over to somebody else, mm. uh, you're, you're cut out of the process. and. And you should, you should trust someone else to make it in their way. You have to just surrender and, and, and let it go, I think. Luckily, yeah. they did involve me, but oh. uh, you don't have to, no. No, it's scary, especially if it's your life. Um, Andrew, you're going to talk about the world of um, computer games where there may be less trust and, I don't know, maybe more, more money. <laughs> maybe, yes. Okay, thanks, Sonia. Um, Sorry. Your slogan there. Yeah. yeah, it is. So that F5. Um, sorry, I'm left-handed. Do you want me to make it come up? There you go. To the left. Good evening, everyone. Thanks for coming. Nice to see you all. Are you all hardcore gamers? I'm certainly not one. I'm going to. I'm going to talk a little bit about computer games. Uh, a little bit about Harry Potter. I once very nearly became a full-time Harry Potter academic, having written three papers about Harry Potter games, novels, and films. And I was invited to a conference in the States, and I was just about to accept when I noticed it was in costume. I <laughs> saw this huge abyss opening up in front of me, so I stepped step back very quickly. There'll be a little few Harry Potter references here. You can see the picture of Dobby the house elf, or Vlad Vladimir Putin, to whom he has sometimes been compared <laughs> on the first slide. Um, and uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about Harry because um, writing those three pieces did kind of alert me to some of the kind of interesting questions about what you gain and lose when you adapt a narrative into a computer game, usually via a film. And you probably know there's a very successful multimedia franchise around Harry Potter, which includes a game adaptation of each of the, uh, the books and films. My, um, my take on this is to kind of argue that there are really two Harry Potters and they're doing quite different things. J.K. Rowling has very cunningly squeezed them into the same set of books. Uh, one of them, I think, is the Harry Potter of the novel of maturation, or the Bildungsroman. So like David Copperfield, or Pip, or Jane Eyre, or Anne of Green Gables, Harry is somebody who is orphaned, who grows up, who learns the important lessons of life, of loyalty, of friendship, who has to go out and make his own way in the world, who has to fight his foes and overcome the challenges, and emerge eventually into adulthood. That, that's that kind of story. And novels are particularly well suited to do that, and the medium of film, of course, is, is also very well suited to carry that kind of story, because they can carry the kind of narrative of psychological development that's so essential to it. 
The computer game, I think, is a different matter. When you look at the computer games, you see there are some bits of that story that you find quite difficult. And psychological development is one of them. I think one day games may be able to do psychological development, but at the moment, they're not brilliant at it, I would say. Our reaction to this is very often to kind of see them as a dumbed-down medium, you know, to complain that their characters are kind of two-dimensional or even one-dimensional, whatever that might mean, a uh, piece of string maybe, um, and to sort of lament, you know, the lack of subtlety or nuance or psychological development or internal strife or whatever. I read a, on this question, um, I read an interesting um, account of this kind of characterization, which opened my eyes again. It's in a book called um, Hamlet on the Holodeck, which is a well-known classic in the field of computer game studies by the American uh, literary and new media academic um, Janet Murray. And she, she tackles this question. She says, well, you know, you look at computer games, you see these kind of, you know, clunky characters. They've apparently got no brains. They behave like robots. All they ever do is kill people. You know, um, are we not right to sort of deprecate this medium and, and, and its failure to achieve the kind of great works of art that literature and film have achieved before it? And her answer is, no, we're not. We're making a confused um, comparison. We shouldn't really be comparing computer game characters to people like, or to characters like Emma Bovary or Paul Morell, or any of the sort of pantheon of psychologically developed characters in the modern European novel. We should instead be looking at much more ancient, or maybe archaic is the better word, narratives, uh, like the Homeric narratives. So you, can, you compare a computer game character to Achilles, and all of a sudden it begins to make a bit more sense. You know, Achilles does have powerful emotion when he loses Patroclus, but on the whole, he's there to kind of fight Trojans. And when he fights Trojans, he does it in pretty much the same way every time. Because the Odyssey, uh, the Iliad, is an oral formulaic text, it's made up of repeated formulas that occur over and over again. And the way in which Homer describes people being killed is fairly similar each time. You know, they, their guts are ripped out, they fall to the ground, and their armour rings about them. Um, so when you think of Achilles in that kind of way, it's not so dissimilar from a computer game character who's well set up to do that. The great scholar of oral narrative and orality, Walter Ong, calls these characters heavy heroes. And in some senses, Harry is a heavy hero. He's always the same. Although he grows up, he's kind of still always the same. He's always there. He's always got his zigzag scar. He's always got his magic wand. He's always fighting Voldemort over and over again. And in the end, he always wins. In a sense, he's a kind of perennial heavy hero, relying on external combat, what Walter Ong calls a, a sort of agonistic way of engaging with the world to solve his problems rather than internal psychological efforts. So, two Harrys. Um, just a, another little enlightening moment I had a while ago when we were researching um, role-playing games and action-adventure games. Yes, some people do research computer games. Aren't I lucky? <laughs> Maybe not. Depends on your point of view. Uh, and we went and interviewed a guy in London who was the lead programmer for this, this um, game, The Thing, which is an adaptation of John Carpenter's celebrated horror film of the same name of the 70s, itself an adaptation of the story from the 30s or 40s, I think. And um, we interviewed this guy, and we taped him, and he kept on talking about this thing called an entity module. And I had no idea what he was talking about. I mean, I know nothing about computer programming. And in the end, I had to ask him, well, what's an entity module? And he said... Oh it's, a, oh, it's a character. It's a character. And what he meant was, in, in programming terms, a character is a bundle of media 
resources, a database effectively, held together by algorithms that specify how that database will behave under certain circumstances. If it enters something that triggers a combat sequence, up comes the combat algorithm and the, com and the, and the, uh, the fighting animations. That's how computer game characters are programmed and behaved. And again, I thought, well, if I told this to English teachers or to literary types, they'd be absolutely furious. They'd, they'd say, oh, you know, to reduce narrative and character to a matter of numbers and algorithms, what a dreadful thing to do, what an offence to our culture. But again, I thought about Homer and the oral formulaic tradition and thought, well, Achilles isn't really, again, that dissimilar from this. You know, he's a bundle of, he's, he's a data, of, of media databases, i.e. literary fragments, which make up the formulae of which he's constructed, epithets, um, repetitive um, representations of combat, love, and loss, uh, strung together as the narrative dictates. Or indeed, as the performer of the narrative decides is appropriate for that particular context. You can see how my argument's developing, I hope. Um, you may not be convinced by it, but we can talk about it later. Another little moment um, in researching games, in this case with children, we, uh, we developed a software called Mission Maker. Uh, commercial break. No, I'm not really selling Mission Maker, but you can buy it. <laughs> Which was for children to be able to make their own 3D um, action-adventure games. And we taught them two important concepts in the making of games, concepts they weren't really familiar with. Um, the concept of rule, because games are rule-governed things, and the rules themselves are programmed. Um, in computer code, and economies. Games are made up of quantified um, assets, time, ammunition, um, weight, objects that you pick up, or whatever it might be. Okay, so they learnt this, and they learnt that to make a successful game, you had to be able to master rules and economies. Again, for the, because we were doing this with English teachers, there was a bit of a sense that we drifted away, rather, from what narratives were really all about. So we asked the kids the question, you know, rules and economies, it's the first time you've really come across this. Would you find these in stories? And one kid stuck his hand up and said, well, I can think of one from Lord of the Rings. Uh, Frodo's sword glows blue when orcs appear. You all know this. Um, and he was right. That is exactly a rule, and it's a kind of rule you can program easily in a computer game. Games are very good at doing that kind of thing. Just as, you know, when the company of the ring is halfway up the mountain um, and they run out of elvish lembas, all their energy drains away, you know, give them some more lembas. Something, again, that a game would do very effectively, and, of course, the game adaptations of the Lord of the Rings cycle do exactly that. We say, what about economies, then? What about quantifiable assets? A little girl stuck her hand up and said, Hansel and Gretel. And we excuse me, she said the breadcrumbs, you know, they lay a trail, trail of breadcrumbs to find their way home from the forest, you know, it's an economy, the, the breadcrumbs get less every time they, they drop some out. Again, she was completely right, a computer game would be extremely good at programming that kind of narrative device were there a computer game of Hansel and Gretel. It would make a very good one, I think. You can see that I'm kind of developing a line of thought here, which in a sense is saying, well, we may think that computer game narratives are the newest of all narratives. Two minutes. Two minutes. Newest of all kinds of narratives, but my argument is that in, in many ways they're, they're the oldest. They're the most ancient, the most archaic. They're like that, a new version of that. Differences, of course, <coughs> but many similarities. I think Japanese games are much better at exploiting this than we are, and there are some academic lines of argument about where Japanese role-playing games come from that trace them back to kind of Shinto and Buddhist myth and samurai legend. 
So, you know, there's a sense in which they have a, a strong sense of a narrative tradition, a folk tradition, a folkloric tradition, which has informed the way game narratives are designed and produced in Japan. In the West, I think we're not so good at this. Uh, we're beginning to realize it. So my, my plea for the future, which was my, the final point of my talk, was how, how, how might we exploit our back catalogue? How might we look at stories like Gawain and the Green Knight or um, Spencer's Fairy Queen or the more recent ballads which kind of do this, you know, Tennyson's um, Lady of Shalott, for instance, or Longfellow's Hiawatha? How could we take those stories which would make extremely good games, I know because I have run them all as dramas in classrooms, and dramas are very similar to computer games in many ways. Um, are we failing to exploit our back catalogue? I think we probably are. There's one little um, example of what might be done in this game, which is a, a computer game based on Beowulf, uh, based partly, in fact, on the film of Beowulf, um, developed by the graphic novelist Neil Gaiman. And I'll just play you a little uh, sequence from this game to make the point, uh, just for Bit of, uh, bit of fun, really. This is Beowulf fighting the dragon at the end of the story. And you can see that at the top of the screen, there's a bar which represents the dragon's life energy, or life points, or health points. And there's a bar at the bottom which represents Beowulf. So you get a very graphic representation of how the, the economy of uh, life and strength, in this case, um, is kind of um, dynamically related as you fight through the, uh, through the sequence. The other point to make about this is that this is not actually the game, of course. This is a video of the game extracted by somebody who's played it and put it on YouTube. So Sonia's point earlier about the fact that um, we no longer see the cycle of adaptation being contained entirely within the mechanisms of literary production and uh, media production, but they've spilled out into the people who used to be the audiences. Now these audiences are new and canny producers. And if you look at any computer game adaptation on YouTube, you find that they're producing, um, they're producing attributes to the game, they're producing uh, testaments to it, ironic parodies of it, walkthroughs that instruct you how to play it, whole new narratives, sequences based entirely on the music tracks as a kind of um, you know, affectionate comment on those things. One final example of the future of the fans is in the, in the uh, project we did with children making their own games. We said to them, well, what kind of stories would you like to turn into a computer game? And one kid said, well, the Odyssey. I'm back to the Homeric theme, of course. We said, why the Odyssey? He said, well, you know, take the episode of Scylla and Charybdis. You know, you've, you're sailing in between the whirlpool and the mountain uh, and the, uh, the multi-headed monster. Uh, in my game, the monster would have six heads, so it would take six crew members off the ship at one time, thereby depleting the economy of the crew's numbers by six. And he went on to spell out what rules and economies would mean. And again, he's completely right in the sense that kind of story, oral formulaic, is perfectly adapted for, adapted for adaptation into a computer game. So the future, maybe, is the fans as well as the industry. And I'll stop there. Thanks. I'm impressed at the school where uh, the kids know about uh, uh, Scylla yeah. and Shrivedis, yes. It was a bit unusual. And they've just, <laughs> they just done it in humanities. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, just done it. Good. It won't exist anymore in the e-back, obviously. But, <laughs> but is part of the back catalogue. So... Uh, 
<clears throat> as an ex-English teacher, it's absolutely lovely to be here, bringing together my two loves in life, film and um, various literary forms. And I would like to start with a small anecdote also from one of my classrooms, where when I was um, teaching Shakespeare to my year nine class, um, year nine, 13, 14 year olds, and they were doing Romeo and Juliet, two of them came to me after class and said that they had never seen their own life stories written in such great detail by anyone. So I was, I was rather amused and I said, you know, what do you mean? And they then went on to tell me this rather grim tale of, of a girl from a council estate, a boy from another council estate, deeply and passionately in love. And the thing that they really got about Romeo and Juliet, which the boy who ate his tie on the side of the classroom didn't get, but which these two girls definitely did, was that it was all about emotions. So for them, however you adapted it, the narrative was something that they recognized. There was a kind of emotional realism there. And that, for me, is going to be the bridge into Bollywood and Hindi films, which people have written about in very derogatory ways, which, have, which has been described as the scum from India, sort of floating around the globe, and which the Indian intelligentsia generally looks down upon as a kind of a mawkish and melodramatic form, which doesn't reflect authentic Indian cultures. So let's take a look at the productive relationship between Shakespeare and Indian art forms and Indian cinema over the last few years. There is a really long and rich tradition of adaptations of Shakespeare, of plays being put on, of various different art forms borrowing and taking from Shakespeare narratives in India. This goes back many, many years and situates the tale I'm going to tell in a context of conflict because you have a colonial power bringing with it a particular literary form which many of the colonized find has resonances for them. So you have tales of brutality and colonization and fighting and romance which people recognize and they respond to for various different reasons. You've got colonizers trying to educate the local colonized people through local dramatic clubs, and there are histories of these things if you care to look. And you've also got people taking Shakespeare and doing it in Indian dance or doing it through Indian song and therefore being castigated for ruining the original, for changing the original, for actually demeaning Shakespeare. And here is one of the only remaining very beautiful photographs of a, um, an Othello which was performed in Bengali many, many years ago, 1919, as you can see, where Othello is about to murder his wife, Desdemona. And this was the kind of thing that the Bengali intelligentsia back then was enjoying, despite the fact that this was a colonial text, according to many in the Indian freedom struggle. Acknowledged Hindi film adaptations are many. I can't go on to name them. This, wouldn't, this would not be a good use of time today. But one of the earliest, um, the killing of my blood, or my blood, the killing of blood, Hamlet, was much renowned and has been written about several times. People have looked at three different aspects of this. One of them being 
How did it adapt the form? So how did it adapt the, the acts, the scenes, the sequences? The second has been, how does it adapt culturally? So how does it take the ideas from Shakespeare's time, the relationships of patriarchy, the relationships of daughters, of lovers, of sisters and advisors, and bring that into an Indian context? And the third question, really, which has been much talk talked about was how do the characters, how do these Indian characters get into the British dramatic tradition in a film? So there's been a lot of criticism of it, but also a lot of praise of the way in which it picks up on two different sensibilities. One of them, Shakespeare's, and the second one, a kind of British dramatic narrative tradition. And this this tradition found its way into a film which some of you might have seen, Shakespeare Walla, in an imaginary love story between a, a traveling actor and an Indian. You have then the key part of my presentation today, which is going to be about the adaptation of two films into Bollywood in the last 20 years. Makbul, which is an adaptation of Macbeth, and I'll talk a bit more about that later. And the director of Makbul, whom I know in a tenuous way, although we have never met, I know through um, someone who's been a cinematographer for him, um, is a huge Shakespeare fan. It wouldn't be an overestimation to say that he considers himself one of the biggest Shakespeare fans in Bollywood. Although many Hindi films borrow themes from Romeo and Juliet without acknowledging, he set out openly to make a tribute to Shakespeare in this, his first adaptation, Makbul. And the two characters you can see here in the bottom are his adaptation of the witches. They're sort of small-time crooks, also policemen, also soothsayers, who at various points in the movie make pronouncements about what's going to happen to Macbul, to the, to the figure of Macbeth in the film. Um, as you can see, historically, if you look back through um, representations of the witches over time, um, there is a whole lot of cultural and political interpretation that goes into the presentation of certain figures. So how do you present them? Do you present them as the truth behind society, the people who know what's really going on, the power brokers? Do you present them as crazy people who've been driven mad? And all of these things are political choices. Superficially, you look at these characters and they feel very recognizable in India today. Um, there are various themes which you could pull out of Macbeth and say they fit right into a Bollywood schema. Superstition, corruption, hierarchy, and violence. I haven't talked about any of the nice things here, but then that's Macbeth. You wouldn't want to change it. Um, women as evil, as victims, as others. And you can see four different representations over time. Maybe people will have seen Roman Polanski's Macbeth. You'll recognize the, the Lady Macbeth from that, introverted and furious. This is Nimi, the Macbeth from the Hindi film adaptation. Mukbul, and I had wanted to show a clip, but again, I think time limits us. She is a character who develops in quite a different way from Lady Macbeth, because she's contextualized in relation to gender and gender oppression in India, as well as being a machinator, a character who undergoes a conscious transformation during the movie. And so her life is very much one of being used by men and bitterness and constraint. And in a way, it isn't just an adaptation. It's also an interpretation of Lady Macbeth. 
It's an interpretation of Lady Macbeth which is quite compassionate in a way. Um, there's a whole load of literature written about these two things, but I liked this one quote because the person writing about it suggests that the chaos and betrayal and the sinister murkiness of Shakespeare's world is something which is quite recognizable, not just on screen in India today, but actually off screen. And here I pick up again on this notion of reflecting reality and fidelity, because when a lot of people talk nowadays about Shakespeare adaptations in India, they talk about not fidelity to the original text, but fidelity to the reality of Indian life. This might seem very strange, but they kind of ask the same question that my two year nine girls asked. How did he know what we were going through, what we were feeling? How did he know that India was going to be this messy, corrupt, gangsterish place? Well, the answer is things haven't changed that much when it comes to power. Um, I'll, I'll finish on um, Othello because it's such an interesting example. Um, Omkara is set in a sort of gangsterish, um, let's say, a rural belt of India. Um, the characters are again gangsterized rather than being noblemen. They're, they're petty thieves and, and, and lo local overlords fighting for power and control. But the story remains the same. It's one of hatred and betrayal and jealousy and fidelity and love. And the, again, the same director, Bardwaj, whom you saw earlier on talking about his love of Shakespeare, just transplants the action into an Indian setting and then employs various mechanisms for bringing the narrative through. You might argue about its fidelity, but you can't argue about how well it works as Bollywood. Um, here you have Othello and Desdemona, the two characters transformed. And finally, that brings me to the various different ways in which one could approach, either negatively or positively, this history of adaptation in Indian cinema, in Indian theatre, and in Indian life. You could see it as a vehicle of colonial ideas, or a vehicle now of a kind of imperial sensibility, a kind of English language-centered, Western-centered view. I think that's narrow and reductive, but there are numerous volumes written on this, and some of them are very good and very persuasive. You could argue about the way in which the texts remain faithful to the performance. So the way in which a Shakespearean dramatic performance transforms beautifully into the masala mixture of Hindi films. You've got the fools, the comedy, you've got the little bit of romance, you've got a bit of action, you've got act structures, so you could talk about that. You could talk about how translation and language actually lose a lot of the nuances of Shakespeare's original, and how new translations and uses of language bring back in some of the bawdy bits that today's youngsters in schools might not get, might not understand. You could talk about conceptual differences and conceptual similarities in terms of the universe of love and emotion. And I think for me, that's the place I would like to stay. I would like to talk about how the narratives stay true to a kind of emotional, realist universe, which is not just Bollywood. It's actually more than Bollywood. And I'll stop there. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you very much.
I'm impressed that how, um, so I think uh, the, the, the possibilities and uh, potential of adaptation has been sung. Um, no stories of uh, Disney wrecking uh, Winnie the Pooh here, I think. Um, or um, in a way, you're, you're, you're pointing to success stories. Um, I wonder if you, uh, what are the ways in which it can go wrong? Why, why then is there such a sort of an anxiety about um, I take the point about fidelity, but um, are there other things that can go wrong? Is it also sometimes a move from high culture to popular culture? Many of you, you've, you've talked a lot about Shakespeare. Um, I hadn't quite realised this was going to be such a Shakespeare panel. But, uh, um, so so what, what makes it work? And what makes for a successful adaptation? Okay, big question. Um, just a small observation, really, that... Um, Many of you will have seen Brokeback Mountain, uh, I think widely regarded as a very successful film, based on, what is it, a 14-page yeah, short story? A bit, bit longer. Uh, and, and I think that is a bit of a clue, because if you are adapting a you know, 19th century novel that big for a film, rather than for a 13-part television series, you're up against problems mm -hmm. of what you contain and can do. Mm. Mm. Um, so that's one way you can go wrong, trying to pack too much in. But that's sort of the opposite of the Shakespeare example, isn't it? Which is that it's so rich it enables many kinds of readings and interpretations rather than... Oh, well, well, I mean, I didn't talk about the things that went wrong, and there are, there are whole articles devoted mm. to particular productions of um, Shakespeare into Hindi film, which mm. have gone dramatically wrong, not, not just into Hindi film, but into Bengali or Kannada. And one of them talks about, I can't remember exactly which one it was, but it was an adaptation of Hamlet, which tried to follow a particular theatre company's production that the director had seen on a trip to Sweden the previous year and so he sees this production he's completely smitten by it he thinks it works it's very bleak it's very black and white and he comes back to India and this is probably about 25 years ago and he thinks Hamlet is what India needs now because it looks at dynasties and succession and political parties and then he goes on to make this quite passionate story in an extremely bleak monochrome slow sequential manner and there are about four people sitting and watching it in every performance at the cinema because it simply does not work. So he tried to mimic the form and that failed. So I think you can see how mimicking something rather than adapting it can go dramatically wrong. And therefore not speaking to your audience. Yes, absolutely. Not, not the audience there. mattered not at all to him. It was yeah. fidelity to the text or to the yes. performance. Good. Um, well, um, we have time for questions from everyone here. So um, there is a roving mic going around. You'd wait for it. There's the first question there. If you'd just like to say uh, who you are and uh, ask your question. Yes, I'm D David Glue. I just, um, I'm not a student or anything like that, but I'm fascinated by this. Uh, um, Blake Morrison says the fellow was a big influence on the last weekend. I think Catherine Mansfield was the first writer to base his style on usually commenting on a Shakespeare play or a Greek myth. For example, I assume her short story, Daughters of the Late Colonel, is a sarcastic attack on King Lear, as Cordelia acts in a very joyless, legalistic male way. Also, Mansfield mimics the way time is jumbled up in the play. One minute, Lear as uh, Leo is dying, the next he's carrying Cordelia in, in his arms. Yeah. Um, 
Uh, well, as, uh, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to answer your, your point, but obviously Shakespeare is, like Homer, um, a classic who, who, because of his openness and multiplicity of meaning, is always going to be reinterpreted and adapted. Adapt, you could say the definition of a classic is its you know, continual adaptability, its ability to resonate in different cultures at different times. Um, I'm struck watching the Bollywood Shakespeare um, uh, productions there, how many of them used similar names. In, in my last weekend, the four main characters are called Ollie, Ian, uh, Daisy, and um, well, we'll leave those three. If you think of the main characters in, 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 in Othello, it's, it's a signalling some connection, just as those Bollywood titles signal the connection to the original. Hi, uh, I'm an alumni and also a crime author published with Random House. I have a couple of uh, questions uh, slash comments. The first is, isn't really all that adaptation essentially a mitigation of risk? And the second one is, is, it a, um, mitigation is a mitigation of risk in general, uh, adaptations, uh, full stop. Uh, the second one uh, is... You know, I'm a believer in the adage, if you want to write about life, bloody live one first. And that, therefore, most novelists or uh, uh, book authors are generally older or have had some experience which defines them early in youth. The poor me's or I got banged up abroad for 30 years in a Thai prison or something. And that most uh, uh, screenwriters are generally churned out of film schools, let's say. Uh, who really can't have too much to write about in terms of originality other than serving lattes at their local Starbucks. So what I'm really asking, it's kind of like homeopathy. You know, the more dilute something is, the stronger it is. That why it is that the base materials, the novel, then it goes to the second least dilute thing, which is the screenplay, then the game, then the cuddly toy. And also, why it is that there aren't any original movies that someone wants to take the option of to then write the novel? I know that there are some games where they wrote the movie from it, Street Fighter or whatever, which was kind of ghastly, although I did enjoy the game when I should have been working on a first year. <laughs> um, so I suppose what I'm really saying is... Um, what, what opinions you guys have on why the link goes that way, not the other way, and also about adaptation in itself. Thank you. There were quite a few questions there. Who would like to um, kick off? You're pointing at Andrew? Yes, Andrew. <laughs> okay, well, I, I'll just pick up the one, that, the one about why, why that sequence. Uh, just to say, I think maybe... Um, if you take a longer perspective, the one I was trying to take about archaic narratives, may maybe that isn't the sequence. I mean, the novel is a relatively modern um, European form that has its own kind of sensibility. It doesn't work well with game adaptations so much, as I've said. 
Um, Renaissance drama works rather better with it. So, you know, we have to think about drama and plays as well, I would say, um, particularly in, the, in that tradition, but, but also ancient narratives, which, which, are oral, which are oral narratives. So they're quite a different beast from a book. I mean, a question I didn't really address on that, I know it's not quite what you're asking, is what, why... Maybe, you know, what's the right medium for a particular moment in history, actually, is an interesting question. I mean, ever since Joyce, there have been the, the, the death of the novel has been kind of, you know, its death knell has been rung many times, you know, who could write a novel after Joyce? Um, and maybe, you know, adaptations into new media which become available are partly a kind of answer to that question. You know, what's the right medium for our times? But, but the rather puzzling thing is why would a medium throw itself back to the most ancient and most archaic of narratives? To which my answer is, there seems to be a perennial need for those. You know, we can have the most sophisticated literature and film in the world, but kids still need dark folk tales. And actually, probably so do adults. There's quite a convincing academic argument about, uh, you know, a, a sort of irrational underbelly to the civilization of the Enlightenment. You know, we may have invented wonderful scientific toys and uh, rational narratives in the European novel tradition, but there's part of us that still needs, you know, the bogey in the uh, the bogeyman in the cupboard, and the uh, the folk tale told to us um, by our parents. Andrew, haven't you also got a, a kind of a pedagogic mission here? I mean, in a way. Uh, Beowulf and Homer might get forgotten if you didn't make their link with um, games or make their link to classroom practice and some of the activities you get kids to do as part of an education practice. I mean, in a way, you, you, you're, you're trying to keep the certain stories mm. alive. Mm. Uh, maybe Shakespeare, maybe Roman Juliet would get forgotten if it weren't for Baz Luhrmann. So, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to keep a legacy alive through transforming. From well, one form to the I guess that's the other side of the coin, isn't it? We, mm. we, we strive to find the medium for our age, but we're in danger of yeah. throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And I, th I think that's com completely true. Those yeah. stories are the kind of birthright of all children. They weren't abolished mm. by the Enlightenment uh, or by the European novel. They were driven underground. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting how, after the European novel, it became impossible to write fantasy. I mean, whenever Dickens wants to have a ghost in his books, he has to kind of explain them away in the footnotes. And Charlotte Bronte, the same kind of thing, you know? No pictures anymore. They're all driven underground into children's books. You know, so we need to kind of bring them out again, I think. But I let's not forget, sorry, do you want to, uh, no, I was going to say, let's not forget that these tales don't get forgotten because, you know, uh, Christopher Logue translates Homer, this comes up with new versions of Homer, comes up actually... Um, with new ways of describing ways of killing people, Excellent. inventively <laughs> words. You know, would, yeah. would, I think the classic scholar would dispute that idea that they all die in the same way, yeah, yeah, yeah. similar description. Um, and um, Shane Massini mm. translates Beowulf. So you've got, you know, you've got, you've got books continuing to be books as well as becoming mm. films. Um, and that's another way of keeping things alive. I mean, partly in answer to your question, the commercial imperative is, is, is surely part of the answer. Um, if, if, a, if a book has been successful, um, it has a certain cachet, literary cachet, and is a bestseller as well, Ian McEwan's Atonement, its chances of becoming a film are surely all the greater. There's going to be that interest of the film version of a successful novel. That, that's your point, I think, about mitigation of risk, isn't it? Yeah. 
I also wanted to pick up that point about mitigation of risk because actually um, I think it's a huge risk because there are people who are deeply committed to the poem, the play or the novel and it's a large body of fans that you have to please or die really and the number of adaptations that are successful and this might be surprising certainly in Hindi film are, are, are far fewer than the number that fall at the box office or are completely unsuccessful, are slated by the critics. So actually it isn't a mitigation of risk. I think it's a very risky business going in and playing with people's imaginary worlds which they've taken from novels and poetry and plays. And again, just boiling down an adaptation from book or, or theatre to film to the screenwriter or to the narrative elements is not doing it just because as you talked about that one minute segment of the boy being driven round um, by his father and taught how to drive, I've got many examples of that but I just want to focus on one. There's a beautiful novel by Monica Ali called Brick Lane which came out as a film a few years ago and she herself said that this film captured something about the area she was writing about, something about the mood and tone of the Bengalis in Tower Hamlets, which even she had not been able to get across so um, emotion, emotively and affectively in her book. And so it was, a, it was a very successful film in its own right, and it did things with place and mood and sequence, which the book couldn't do. I meant to come here with a very intellectual hat on and get away from my son, but I'm afraid as a mum, I'm going to have to, you know, raise a question which with the teacher here and, and somebody involved in, in, in vernacular theatre, I hope it's, it's not a, a too dumb a question. But the, the, the appallingness of games, the, the commercial imperative to sell to these thick sons of whom I include my darling boy with them, who just want to murder each other, you know, with, with no narrative. Uh, I mean, uh, are you not guilty, potentially, of, of putting a rather nice academic gloss on something that's pretty obscene, unforgivable, and as soon as the technology is actually able to do something other than clobber, will hopefully be consigned to the bin where it belongs? <laughs> yes, yes, Andrew, I think that was for you. Oh, is this for you? <laughs> well put. <laughs> That's what I like, a feisty challenge. Well, I mean, I concentrated on the clobbering thing because I did want to make the point that, you know, um, to try and avoid repeating myself, not just Achilles, but, you know, Robin Hood. Um, well, you know, I mean, there's, there's, there's a kind of procession of characters through ancient and medieval and romance literature who spend quite a lot of time clobbering as well. So, I mean, I, I want to make the point, I mean, where would Shakespeare be without the clobbering, to come back to Shakespeare? Where would Macbeth be, for that matter? Um, so, you know, clobbering has a place, I would say. Um, I, I do agree with you, though, in one respect, which is that the games industry, I think, is lazy about this. It's very easy to program clobbering. It's an easy trope to produce, you know, they've got the algorithm sorted out, it's, it's not hard to reproduce and put a different skin on it. So that game of Beowulf, I'm not, I wouldn't claim is a great game. It, it does quite nicely the Grendel moment 
and uh, Grendel's mother slightly strained because it's Angelina Jolie and he has an affair with her. Um, but he does the dragon quite nicely as well. I think those are good moments. But in between, there is a lot of pointless clobbering of orcs because it's easy to do. So I think, just as I've said, the games industry is kind of blind to our back catalogue. So I think it needs to take more risk. And I think um, the point about risk has already been made. The, the need to kind of take risk and be inventive in adaptation and the development of these stories is clear. However, I would also make the point um, in, in relation to your uh, challenge that those kinds of games, that genre of shoot-em-ups and first-person shooters, is fairly small. I mean, the biggest selling game of all time, certainly PC game, is The Sims, which by all, you know, everybody generally agrees is fairly peaceful and is about building civilizations and families, you know. Um, the big Japanese games, the big role-playing games, like the Final Fantasy series, for instance, I mean, I spent a long time studying Final Fantasy VII, is a kind of rather gentle tale of an eco-warrior, actually, and his love affairs. And the biggest outpouring of emotion in response to a computer game, I think, in history was when one of the characters in that story, Ares, dies. And, you know, fans in Japan and America were kind of utterly heartbroken and poured out their feelings in love poem tributes on the internet. A lot of those fan fiction tributes are very gentle. They're often t they often take the form of lyric poetry or, um, you know, quite kind of literary prose or um, very well-developed concept art with communities to teach each other how to draw, you know. So um, I would say if you look at all the genres across, you know, it's a bit like any other genre. You know, it's a bit like film and literature. I mean, you can find plenty of films that are kind of mindless celebrations of violence. You can find plenty of books which do the same. So I, I would say it's... It's, it's a young medium, you know, it'd be interesting to see how it goes, but I think there's a lot more to it than well, the there's, gen there's presumably a gender difference. There is a gender difference, although the, the stereotypes when you dig underneath them don't work that well. I mean, when you interview girls, you find they don't all play The Sims, actually. They do play a lot of... Uh, they do enjoy, actually, taking the boys on at their own stuff. So there's some quite interesting sort of, you know, gender reversal business going on in the, in, in the fans, among the fans. Yes. Just very briefly, I mean, as also as a, an ex-teacher and as a mother of a seven-year-old who's now obsessed with Super Mario and Mario Brothers, I have a lot of sympathy for this, this feeling about the mindlessness of repetition and the mindlessness of repetitive strategy, even if it is strategizing. Um, but on the other hand, um, my nephew, who's an obsessive chess fan, spends his entire day clobbering one wooden piece with another wooden piece. In fact, he sits in front of a computer screen playing with strange others in other countries, you know, X4 to, to P3, I'm, I'm obviously getting the notation wrong, and this a whole game, a whole game can take, can take more than a week for him, you know, and he's, all he is doing is waiting to kill off someone's piece. So it's a game of strategy, and I think maybe we don't quite see all the nuances that the clobberers see in these yeah, We don't talk games. about people being addicted to chess, do we? No. Or indeed literature. <laughs> Oh, I, I used to be told off for reading books too long when I was a child. Yeah. Told about that. Uh, yes. okay. Get out and do something. Yes, yes. Um, we have time for a last question, if uh, there is one. Um, yes? Oh, okay. Well, two quick questions. <laughs> Three questions. Thank you. Um, after the last question, I kind of hesitate to raise this and draw too many parallels with life and things, but hearing the, the different points here, there was something that struck me. I come from the world of computers and systems and things, so I immediately understood what you were saying about characteristics and reducing things to characteristics. And for me, there, there, there seems to be a cycle, because you're talking about 
you know, good stories are based on life and real experience and things. You turn those into, into a story, those get turned into a computer game, and that's described by a whole load of characteristics. And unfortunately, one of the things that seems to be happening is that we as people are being described by a collection of characteristics. That's what identity is. It's a collection of characteristics. Yeah. So you sort of have this cycle where people are being described by characteristics, which are in computer systems, which are then telling your story. And it kind of makes me wonder about what's the reality and what's the story. Because once you're on a computer system, that becomes you and becomes your history and your story. So you have these sort of concentric and parallel and mirroring circles. And I just... I don't know if you found that interesting, but I think hearing the, the sort of different approaches that you're bringing there suddenly made that connection for me. And I thought we're seeing those sort of circles and parallels. Thank you. Captain, comment or should we? Uh, yeah, sure. I'd like to comment very quickly, but from a parallel universe, if you like, because I did a lot of interviews with people about Hindi films and Bollywood, which also have very repetitive narratives. You've often got, you know, the bad father, the, the star-crossed lovers, it's a, you know, sort of very stock characters. And when we were discussing um, me with a young 17-year-old about whether this was in some way a very narrow and limiting notion of what human beings did with their life and their time, um, this 17-year-old returned to me. Um, for, the, for the 14 years that she lived at home with her parents, um, virtually every Friday evening she heard her parents having exactly the same argument about what they were going to do at the weekend and where he was going to go and what her mother wanted and she said she said sometimes don't people behave like stock characters in their everyday lives running on the same tracks actually rehearsing the same things and she said in what way is sitting back and watching it on screen any worse than having to listen to your parents argue at the dinner table <laughs> I would just add the point that I mean there's something about the interactive mode of computer games I mean you do become the character in a sense or at least you manipulate them or play your avatar so there is, there is a sort of thing about agency and audience that's, that's a bit different um, going on there. But I would also say I'm not sure how much difference computers make to your... I mean, you're, I think you're quite right to say identity is made up of these kind of fragments of story that we have around us and that have been told to us and presented to us. But I wonder how different, different it really is from a, a Saxon peasant hearing a Robin Hood ballad and thinking, well, that could be me or, you know... I can fantasise about having a go at the Normans. I mean, so excuse my rather ahistorical view of uh, Saxon peasants. It's entirely Hollywood-derived, obviously. But uh, you know what I mean. I think, in a way, it's as old as the hills that people have had kind of fictions in which they can work out the difficulties of their daily lives and imagine identities other than the ones that they're kind of constrained to, to adopt. Do you want to take the last question? Uh, thank you. Um, Rafa, I'm just a student here. Um, just two questions for Professor Byrne, uh, just to follow directly on what you were saying. Uh, this uh, uh, agency of the audience, uh, when talking about uh, game being adaptations uh, of movies or of other works, uh, isn't it precisely expressed in the ability of the player to sort of deconstruct or even reconstruct the plot? And I could give examples from Star Wars franchise or even Lord of the Rings, where you can actually play as the bad sorcerer Saruman and sort of change the the whole, uh, the whole outcome of the whole game, uh, wouldn't that be the sort of the, the added value that also Blake Morrison said about the, the, of the new media? And secondly, uh, the, you're talking about the Japanese games, and I suppose you were referring to Final Fantasy VII when this character dies. And, and so, would you say that the difference between the sort of values in games is there a cultural argument there uh, in the times of the global market where games are sort of produ produced for the whole world? 
uh, or you were only talking for this action adventures RPG games, or can you make a like global argument of the cultural differences between Western games, Asian games? Uh, on the first point, just just to say yes, I think there is that kind of agency to reorder the narrative, but it, it varies from game to game, you know, and Final Fantasy is a good example of one where some players feel that they're on a kind of tram line in spite of the illusion of choice that's offered, and they're really being driven down the road of a particular narrative. So, th whereas in a, an online role-playing game, you can kind of do what you want in a sense, construct your own narrative. On the um, second point, I think there is something about global, the global adaptations of these things that is quite interesting. Though again, I kind of imagine it's probably an old story. I mean, Shakespeare adapting Boccaccio, you know, it, it, it's, it's kind of as old as the hills. But there is, I mean, Final Fantasy is a good example of a game which was produced with kind of American time. I mean, it's got characters in who look like, um, uh, what's it called, that television program, the, um, you know, with Mr. T. Uh, the A-Team. The A-Team, yeah. It's got characters model on the A-Team because they've, they've developed it for export to America. So they have this rather strange process of what's called sanitization, where they sort of, you know, strip out the more Japanese characteristics and insert a few American ones so it'll travel more neatly. And that's a very cynical kind of constraint of the audience. But there is something about the way in which these narratives travel globally that's, that's interesting. Um, well, we have come to the end of our time, so I'm going to uh, call a halt here. Um, I would just observe to make a link to an event which is beginning in half an hour that we've been talking about a number of best-selling themes, plots, characters um, from um, Star Wars or Harry Potter or Shakespeare um, or indeed Blake Morrison. And um, our next session is called The Making of Bestsellers. Um, for those of you who have more of the evening to spend, uh, in uh, literary festival events for the department. Um, but for now, let me thank, invite you please to thank very much uh, our panel this evening.